Оскільки російський Facilities have been bombed, similarly as our buildings and memorial places are being bombed. A number of families have died. Every night is a horrible night. The Russians are shelling. A sobering message delivered in the House of Commons this week by Ukrainian President Zelensky, asking parliamentarians, asking Canadians to imagine the violence taking place in his country right now if it was taking place here in Canada. He mentioned Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, bringing home the horrors of war. February 24th, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, by Putin's forces, changed the world, changed the peace that was established after the Second World War, and the images are horrific. Civilians being targeted and bombed, hospitals, tragedy of the pregnant woman evacuated from a hospital who later died. We are seeing these images in real time through social media and putting in perspective, what if it was happening here? As the Chief of Defense Staff, General Wayne Eyre said just this week in a speech to the defense industry, the world is getting more dangerous every day, he said and we need to be ready for it. In fact, General Ayer said military readiness, quote, keeps him up at night. Are we ready? Is the Canadian Armed Forces ready to participate with our NATO allies in conflicts around the world? Are we ready to help our friends in Ukraine? Are we ready to fulfill our own mandate to defend Canada? That speech was a sobering reminder that Canada is not ready. The Canadian Armed Forces has some of the best citizens we have to offer, men and women who step forward, giving unlimited liability to serve their country, our interests around the world, and our values as a nation. So we should, at a bare minimum, be giving those men and women the tools, the training, the support they need to do the job for us. So that's what we're exploring today on the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Member of Parliament Aaron O'Toole, and I'm very fortunate to have with us probably one of the top authorities in the country on whether we are ready, I ready as a nation. Vice Admiral Mark Norman served as the Vice Chief of Defence Staff in the Canadian Armed Forces. Born in Kingston to a military family, Major General Frank Norman, he went to Queens and joined the Naval Reserves in 1980. Serving a distinguished career later in the Reg Force, he was the XO of our destroyer HMCS Iroquois, commanding officer of the finest ship in the fleet, HMCS St. John's. Full disclaimer, I served on that ship as well as part of the air detachment. He went on to be commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. Welcome, Vice Admiral retired Mark Norman. Well, good morning, Aaron, and uh, all the best to you and your, uh, your listeners. 
Looking forward to a good conversation. And yes, it is the best ship in the fleet. There's no denying it. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, our, our friends who we've sailed with can understand, but many, many uh, look at us and think that we're strange when we make comments like that. But it's, it's like cheering for the home team, right? Well, yes. And you know, we're now going to get trolled by people that have served on all the other frigates and all the other ships. In the oh, yeah. Well, that's good. At least they're listening and paying attention. That's good. No, absolutely. My friend, uh, MLA John Reyes, now a minister in, in Manitoba, uh, sailed on HMCS Winnipeg, of course, as a Manitoba uh, MLA. He's very proud of that. And we would have a friendly rivalry on the best ship in the fleet. Right. But uh, we didn't serve at the same time. What years did you serve as CEO of HMCS St. John's? I was there uh, 03 to 05, roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So pretty much uh, a little bit after me. I was about uh, 99 to, to, to 2001 or so. Um, but a big question, you know, I'm an RMC guy. So is your dad. Uh, uh, he was commandant about a decade before I went there, or maybe about six years you went to Queen's University, our big rival in Kingston, and then you joined the Navy. Was this your childhood uh, or your teenage uh, uh, rebel nature to not go into the Army and go to RMC like your dad? Well, there, this, this could be a whole podcast in itself, um, therapy, if you will. Um, the short version, which you know I'm not good at short versions, is... Um, the interest in the Navy came from being in Kingston and sailing. And um, I actually had joined the Naval Reserve before I went to university. Um, and I actually started at Royal Roads. Um, and I did uh, a semester at Royal Roads, but I just, it wasn't for me. So that's, I came back, finished my uh, schooling at Queens and, and had stayed in the reserves through, throughout my time. Um, at university. And then um, when I graduated in 85, um, I transferred over to the regular force. And, and that's, that's the beginning of the story. There you go. Oh, that is an interesting story. And you know, I did. Sorry, I did. I cut you off. I did have um, collar dogs, as the army calls them, um, from uh, the Royal Canadian Regiment, uh, gifted to me when I was a young child, so uh, by a friend of the family. So yes, there were some significant expectations that I would follow um, in the regimental footsteps, but I, I, Dad had taken me camping a number of times when I was a kid, and I just said, I, I can't see myself doing this for a living. I'm sorry. This is, this is not where I want to be. <laughs> well, uh, ca camping with a dad uh, who's a senior officer in the Army, you were probably bivouacking, not just camping, I'm sure. Um, but you ended up outranking him by the end of your career. So I guess the Navy, the, the decision to go into the Navy and even to go to Kingston's second best university wasn't, wasn't a bad one. Well, yeah, and that's, uh, I still call him sir. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> that's what matters. Well, give him my best. I, I often said, you know, when you were in your trials and tribulations in the media, and you're a remarkable person. I, I've seen the, the compassion you have for men and women in the armed forces uh, firsthand. Uh, you used to help with um, veterans who were, uh, you know, going through struggles, you would send over Navy kit that I could deliver to them. You were always there. And um, you you went through those those trials because you were pushing for the men and women to have the equipment you thought they needed to have, you know, without getting into the whole uh, saga of that time. Um, 
the discussions over the Asterix, our supply vessel, um, I was so passionate about that ship because without the ability to have a tanker, an auxiliary oiler for the Navy, so that we could refuel our own ships, for a time, Canada wasn't a full blue water Navy. Um, is that why it was so important to make sure that that uh, you were able to get the equipment our people needed? I mean, at the strategic level, yeah, the answer is yes. There, there was also an element of, of it that was uh, uh, driven by uh, the need to maintain the skills. Um, and you, you and I have seen this in our own careers um, and, and over the period that that uh, of our adult lives, that when you lose a capability, um, it, it it's almost impossible to bring it back. So that was, that was part of it. But, you know, there was a number, nothing's ever um, black and white, as I know you understand. And, and there's a number of, of important considerations, but, you know, those were, those were the two primary ones was that we, we had to go, we had to be able to go far afield and support ourselves. And uh, we needed to maintain uh, skills that were essential for the, the country's ability to do that. And I think, you know, those ideas tie right into uh, the discussion that we're going to have this morning. No, absolutely. And during that period when you were in the public eye, I often said your entire life had been in service of Canada because you grew up in a military family. And as you were then going off to, to school, you joined the military yourself. And then your family has been committed to serving the country. And I have such admiration for people who put the country's interests ahead of their own. So we're obviously, I started this podcast with an excerpt from President Zelensky's address to Parliament this week. Um, as a retired senior military officer, you must be watching the events in Ukraine closely like all Canadians are. What are your thoughts about Putin's invasion of Ukraine and, and the state of, of, of play in global security? Yeah, well, um, there's layers. And I think, you know, there's a human dimension to this, which you touched on uh, quite effectively in your introductory comments. And uh, like, like most Canadians, I'm just, uh, I'm just devastated watching what, what's happening um, and the human, the human aspect of it, which is real. And, and it, it, it's interesting because I, I think, you know, we've had, we've had similar conflicts in the past 10 to 20 years, um, but the ability and, and arguably the effectiveness of the Ukrainians in particular to bring it to our homes um, via social media or to our phones and tablets more accurately, I think is having uh, even more significant effect on who's seeing it and how they're reacting to it. So that's my first reaction. My second reaction from a military perspective is, is one of, um, beyond the human dimension, is just one of um, incredible professional curiosity with respect to how, how this is playing out, how it has played out, um, what's happening, not on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, but more, you know, operationally examining the campaign and, and some of the key elements of it. And then lastly, it's the strategic dimension of this, which you you touched on earlier. And, and it's the fact that there is no denying this is a seismic event in in global geostrategic affairs, military affairs in particular. And um, we don't know yet what the impacts are going to be um, in the medium to long term. Um, we're seeing them play out here in the short term. And, and you know, I would just, I would kick off the, 
the discussion in that context by saying that you know this 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 is a real wake up call for NATO. I, I genuinely believe and have said to others that NATO is stuck, um, and uh, it, it 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 is being deterred. So we go back to the concept of deterrence, which you and I uh, understand from our our studies earlier in our careers. And NATO and and its member nations are actually being deterred by the actions of Russia, and that in and of itself should be concerning, notwithstanding what's happening on the ground on a day to day basis. So those are my those are my broad thoughts. Yes, and, and in fact, this is the biggest test of NATO in its existence, really. And and the the question will be: Is Canada ready? to live up to its NATO commitments and be part of those discussions. I've, I, in my previous podcast, I talked about the creeping barrage of aggression by Putin going back to invasion of Crimea and, and Donbass uh, in 2014, 2015, the cyber attacks, the, the continued aggression that has really led NATO to almost soften and just be used to this level of aggression. And then the invasion was ramped up. We started off, I, I quoted the current chief of defense staff, uh, General Ayer, who you, you would have served with and, and known quite well. Do you share his worries? He said military readiness keeps him up at night. Um, as, a, as a former head of our senior service, the Navy, as someone who is the deputy commander of the transformation of the Canadian Armed Forces, are you worried about our current readiness as a military? Absolutely, and and I was during um, the bulk of my um, my senior officer service, if you will, um, and um, you know you start to see you start to see things through a different lens, uh, depending on where you are in the organization. And I think General Eric's comments are accurate and entirely appropriate. Um, and uh, the issue really is, you know, what does that mean, um, and and what do we do about it? And you know, it's it's a complex recipe. Um, understanding military readiness again, uh, you and I share our experience together, but fundamentally, what he's saying, um, and I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm just I'm just unpacking it for your listeners. What he's saying is that the current state of the armed forces. Um, is and should be of concern. Um, and that covers both the material state of the equipment, the numbers of equipment, the levels of material um, technical readiness that they're at. You can imagine fleets of vehicles, aircraft, ships, whatever, that's in the inventory of the armed forces. Is there enough of it? And is it at the right level of preparedness? Um, and then you have the human dimension of that, which is, um, are there enough people? Um, are those people properly trained? Have they had sufficient opportunity to work with the equipment and work with other components of either their their army group or their air force group or their fleet group, whatever whatever um, organization they're working for? And uh, are they ready to to go out and do the nation's business? Um, and as we're seeing, you know, sort of the, the pointy end, if you will, in the NATO context, are, are packages uh, of, of capability. We have, you know, air component package, both in terms of maritime patrol aircraft. We have the, the uh, new cyclones deployed as part of the frigates that are deployed. 
we have the battle group in Latvia. I mean, these are, I think these are useful examples for your, your listeners, <clears throat> but every one of those things represents, if you will, a complex system that, that is behind them. Um, what, what they're seeing is what's in the storefront. Uh, if you want to use that kind of analogy, but behind what's in the storefront is a um, complex system of the inventory of the equipment, the material preparation of the equipment, the maintenance, the uh, the, the recruiting of people, the recruiting, the training, um, the, the 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 state of um, any organization where a, a lot of the membership are not available for a variety of reasons. Some of them are medical, some personal. So if you have a hundred people in an organization on any given day, you probably you probably have less than seventy-five of that hundred that are actually available. Um, so these are all the things that create this very complex system that is readiness as um, General Ayers referred to it. And it's not well understood. Um, and then there's a variety of reasons for that, <clears throat> but it, it, it often gets um, stereoid glazes uh, around town when you talk about the concept um, until something's needed. And then, it, and then the first question is, well, what do you have? What's available? Um, and often, and certainly what we're seeing now is, is it's not enough um, and it's not at the levels of readiness that it should be. And uh, that's kind of where we find ourselves. But we didn't get here overnight, um, and and you can't fix it uh, quickly, unfortunately. So that's a long answer. No, well, listen, I think what I took from that was a number of things. You're right. I used to say when I was veterans minister, we owe a duty to the people that uh, are in the military from recruitment to training to deployment to training other people to retirement. Uh, those are people that are serving their country. And you only really see when they're at that deployment pointy end of the stick. As you said, you see the storefront window. You don't actually see the thousands of people, the thousands, tens of thousands of hours that go into getting that soldier, sailor, airman, or woman ready to deploy. So you said the current state should be of concern. Let's look at the Canadian Armed Forces by the numbers. We currently have 67,000 uniform reg force folks. Um, this is well short of the 71,500 the Liberals promised in their 2017 strong, secure, and engaged. The numbers broken down by element is even more concerning. Uh, the Navy, Royal Canadian Navy, which you were a part of, and I was kind of uh, associated with, deployed with uh, as an Air Force officer, 12,570 Reg Force, 4,000 and change in the reserves, only 29 operational vessels, ships, subs, uh, the contracted asterisks. Is that sufficient in your view for a country that has three oceans surrounding it and is a, is a NATO member? I'll put in context at the end of World War II, we had the third largest Navy in the world with 1,100 ships. So 29 versus 1,100. Do we have a ways to go? Well, I mean, the short answer, do we have a ways to go? Yes. Is it enough? No. Um, but you're, you know me well enough to, to know that I, I can't just leave it at that. There's context to, to all of these numbers. And, um, and they apply just as much to the Air Force and Army. Um, I mean, fundamentally, just talk about fleet sizes in, in general. So whatever it is, um, 
there's a combination of things that have to be taken into account. What 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 is the breadth of capability? What what can those platforms actually do? And are those is that a sufficient span of capability? So you have everything from basic patrolling to the drug intervention to sovereignty patrol up to the top end of um, frontline combat capability. Um, and then in that context, can the, is the frontline capability um, polyvalent, to use a French term, enough? Can it do enough things? It can't, we can't do everything. And nobody uh, is, ever, is suggesting that we should be able to do everything. Um, uh, the, and, uh, you know, there's only one country in the world at the moment that can do everything. And arguably, they would say they can't do everything, but they can do a lot of it. So that's the first dimension is what are the capabilities? What do you have? And is it enough? And the answer is no. Um, and then the next layer of that is what, how much of that is available at any one time? So if you round it off to 30 ships, um, at any given time, you know, first thing you do is you take about a quarter of those uh, out of the inventory because they're in different levels of deep maintenance. And then, then you've got issues around um, more routine maintenance. And, it, it, and if you use an automotive analogy for your listeners, that's the difference between the car being in for short-term maintenance um, at the local garage or the dealership, but it, it's in for the day, but you know, you, 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 you'll have it back. Um, just extend that for a period of couple of weeks, maybe that's the equivalent for a, a ship. Um, and you, you know this from your, your, your flying experience, you know, there's routine maintenance that has to be done. And then there's deeper maintenance that has to be done. And that takes them out of, out of service for months and months on end and often for over a year. So that plays into the availability of the platforms themselves. So you've got, you've got capability and availability, which I think are the two uh, key takeaways for our discussion this morning, um, as it relates to the equipment itself. And then you've got the people side of it. And I mentioned earlier, um, you know, down massively in terms of the actual establishment. So there, what are we supposed to have versus what do we have? Um, and of those people that are available, where are they? Um, and are they all uh, able to deploy? Because they might be, they might still be in service in uniform, but they're not available for a variety of reasons. As I said, it could be medical, it could be administrative, it could be um, related to um, they're in a post-deployment or pre-deployment period and they can't, you know, so they're not deployable at that point in time without a waiver of some sort. So these are all the things that combine to, to make um, the, the, the answer more colorful, which is it's not enough. And it's not just pounding on the table and saying it's not enough. It is genuinely not enough. And, and, and the fleet is supposed to grow under um, the current policy, um, and I would go beyond just the government policy. It's supposed to grow because the defense planning says it needs to grow. Um, but for it to grow, that's more platforms, which means more people, which means more training, which means all of these things. So and that applies to both the Army and the Air Force just as much as it applies to the Navy. Absolutely. No, the, uh, you, we wouldn't be in a position to expand without that personnel. You know, the, the, the best part of our Canadian Armed Forces, the men and women, um, if we suddenly, uh, in some lend-lease agreement, the Americans towed some ships up here, we couldn't, we couldn't man them. Um, and, and the training hours that go into it. The, touch on the Army quickly, because I think this would shock Canadians. Um, about 22,000 Reg Force, about roughly the same reserves. 
Uh, and of that, about 5,300 are Canadian Rangers in the north, great force. We're short 8,000 Reg Force soldiers, 11% of our personnel numbers, and 5,000 reservists are untrained. So they're not uh, to, to readiness standards, as we said. That's 30% of our commitment. And if you look, I know from talking to special forces, whether it's JTF2 or CSOR, the burnout rate because of multiple cycles going back to fighting ISIS to special ops in Canada around the world, there's a burnout level of injury. So we're in the double digits short in the army right now. Is this, is this mission critical for our army, that, that those manning levels? Well, yeah. So let, let's talk because there's a couple things in there. Let's talk about the numbers, first of all, and then we'll come back to this issue of, of uh, burnout because I think it's an important issue to just touch on for a second. Um, so with respect to numbers, you look at the battle group in, in Latvia as an example. And let's just say, and I, I'm sure I'm going to get the numbers wrong uh, and somebody will, will correct us uh, on the blog uh uh, website, but let's just say, for sake of argument, it's around 500 plus or minus. Um, so, that's, for in order to generate that 500 people that are in that battle group, you know, it kind of takes the, the army works on a on a three plus one system. So, if if the plus one is what's deployed, then back to this shop, this storefront um, analogy we were using earlier, that means you got to have three kind of at various states of um, training and readiness and rotation. The one that just came back, uh, the one that's getting ready to go, and then the one that's being constituted uh, behind the scenes, if you will. And so when, if you put that in content, and that's for a 500 person battle group, which we're, we're patting ourselves on the back for because there are 500 incredible young Canadians who are doing an awesome job kicking ass. But the point is, it's only 500 people. Um, and, and, and the commander of the army would legitimately claim that that's a struggle for them to generate that 500 people. Could they generate more? Yes. Would it be painful? Absolutely. Um, and, and that's why this is a problem. So for the 500 in the, in the storefront, they need 1,500 in behind. Um, and so then the question of they're down you know, 8,000 and 5,000, what impact does that have? Well, take that out of the inventory, if you use a terrible term, but take that out of your establishment, your organization, and try to figure out how you generate the kinds of capabilities that you need if you need to put more than 500 into, uh, into the field. So this is why, you know, a potential contribution of combined arms, so Army, Air Force, Navy, SOF, 3,400, um, that's that 3,400, if we were able to constitute it and, and we would, because it would be ready to go, that we wouldn't offer it if it wasn't available to NATO. Um, and, uh, that means now, you know, that you've got to have all that in behind that's doing it. And now to your issue of burnout, I mean, th this is a, this is a big deal. This is a problem. This is why the attrition rates are so high. People are tired and, and what's in particular, what happens is we have this phenomena of um, very low density, high demand capabilities. So not all occupations in the military um, have the same demand. 
Um, and, and some of them are very small numbers, but they're mission critical. And if you don't have enough of them, they'll actually compromise the ability to um, go either to fly, to go to sea, or to deploy. And so if people are in these, these um, sort of high demand, low density um, occupations, they're doing multiple rotations and they're just getting burned out to to use your point and that so that tells us that we need more of those um different types of occupations because the need for them isn't going to go away absolutely to maintain readiness now the rcaf can't leave out uh, as a proud vet myself Twelve thousand reg force about two thousand reserve 350 aircraft 55 percent serviceability rate so that gives us about 193 aircraft uh, we have about 47 operational CF-18s um, out of the 94, with 18 of those being used Australian <laughs> CF-18s. Um, is the RCAF, the Air Force, similar in the three plus one ratio, or is, or is that an Army-specific ratio? That's Army-specific, and the Air Force and the Navy have slightly different um a, a formula is it, it's it's only it's a guide it's not a it's it's not doctrinal and it depends it's in particular for the air force it depends on the fleet um because uh some of it has to do with uh the, the availability of the aircraft the platform and as you mentioned what what's their availability rate it also has to do with rotations of crews um as you well understand from you know your your maritime helicopter experience so um but the problem is is just as acute, in fact, if not more so. Um, and it, because, uh, I mean, the, the Air Force is probably the iconic example of um, individual or collective readiness being tied directly to the availability of the platform. Um, simulation is, is, is a means by overcoming that. But at the end of the day, if people aren't flying, they're not, they're not training, they're not ready to fly and do whatever the missions are. So um, a 55% availability rate is, is uh, it, should, it should cause your listeners to kind of shake their heads. Um, hopefully they're not shaking their heads and, and getting angry and frustrated that they're not getting value for the money. They should be shaking their heads and saying, why is it only 55%? It should be much higher than that. Um, and if you were to look at you know, an airline, for example, that you couldn't survive if that was your availability rate, and and we we tend to we tend to accept as an organization we tend to accept significantly reduced levels of material readiness and availability um, for a variety of reasons, and we convince ourselves inside the machinery that it's okay, and then it just it just piles on, and you end up. Um, looking at things and, and that means that if the average is 55%, then some fleets are well below that. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, these are the ones that are well publicized in the news and they get a lot of attention, but they're, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If, if, if yeah. you want to mix our metaphors here. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, listen, back in the late nineties, when I was with 423 squadron in Shearwater, Nova Scotia, we had between, you know, 25, 30 hours of maintenance for every one hour of operational flight with the Sea King. And 
the delays in procurement, the delays in um, and the age of aircraft make that serviceability rate even more challenging. I remember one deployment on St. John's, the aircraft, I was part of the walk-on crew, sailed out of the harbor with the Navy, and usually the Sea King, as you know, the aircraft would join uh, later that day when the aircraft broke down. There was no, uh, no replacement ready, uh, and we did a two-week deployment down to, to Rhode Island training with the, the Americans with no aircraft. And there was one crew on board. They called us the passengers. Uh, I can tell you we were never late in the wardroom for a meal because that was the only thing to do with no aircraft. Um, so, look, the let's get into the larger discussion then. The, the men and women in uniform are our most important resource. So recruitment and then procurement. So to get that three to one ratio for the army, to get that training, recruitment, uh, the professional operations, the deployment capability, uh, the medical and all the other support elements, the burnout you talk about, the attrition we talk about, what do we need to do in 2022 to draw people into the Canadian Armed Forces to meet those numbers and to even grow uniform service? Are we offering the right incentives? Do we need to modernize uh, particularly for skilled uh, NCMs and NCOs, uh, are we doing enough in recruitment? And you did a lot of transformation work uh, when you were a senior officer. Uh, are we going to be able to keep up with the attrition and the burnout that's that's taking people out of uniform? Yeah, there's a lot in there. So let's start with um, let's start with bringing people in the door. Um, and you know, this is probably one of the most um, criticized areas uh, of um, the human resources cycle. Um, and uh, everybody who's in the military professes to be an expert in recruiting because we all went through a recruiting center. That's kind of an inside joke. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, the system is, is uh, not agile enough to deal with uh, the modern workforce um, who want to make decisions quickly um, and uh, don't want to wait around. Um, and I'm sure your friends, my friends, there, there's a litany of stories out there with respect to a lack of agility. And that, that's, a, that's a process issue um, that we've just struggled with. And, and to be honest, I, I don't understand why it's so difficult. I think we make it harder than it needs to be. I know that there's work being done, but there's always work being done. There's always claims that the system is being overhauled and this and that. But fundamentally, the problem hasn't changed um, for decades, and it, it's time to sort that out. But here's here's a layer to this right now. You, even if you had a working, effective, agile, innovative, modern uh, recruiting system um, at this particular point in time, the number one thing that has to be fixed is this um, – this problem of uh, misconduct, and uh, it, you know, and, and we will just park that for the moment. It's not to minimize it because it's not, but you know, you can do a whole podcast on that discussion. Yeah. But in, until that gets fixed, um, and if we're really, if the system was really smart, it would be looking at how it really sorts out recruiting. Finally, after the twenty attempts I've, I've witnessed to sort out recruiting, while it's fixing this problem 
related to conduct because you can't draw people in if they're looking at the institution and they have questions about its integrity. And so if, if, but if you've got it sorted, then you've got to have a system that's more agile and you bring it in. But the, the other problem is, as you've mentioned, is the issue of attrition. Attrition is always there and it is going to be cyclical based on a number of factors. And you can't, you, you can't expect that you're going to get it below a certain number and you just have to accept it. But the problem is if you don't have an effective system to bring people in or you don't have sufficient residual capacity on the bench. So what we've got is a bit of a perfect storm here. We've got um, we've got attrition that's you know higher than people would like it to be. There's no point in calling it normal because there's no such thing. Yeah. And yeah. Then- and on that, can I ask you a question on that? Because you know, look, should we be offering once someone is up and trained, and if they're really highly prized in the private sector, we've talked about pilots over the years, but you know, the the communications and the engineers. Should we be paying them more? And, you know, I use this example because, look, the, the CBC is a, is a crown agency. Uh, they don't even have to disclose what they pay some of their media personalities because they're being given contracts that are commensurate with what CTV and Global and others pay. Um, do you think some of these specialized uh, parts of the military uh, the pilots are already paid or, or have different contracts. Is this how we keep that capability? Once someone is a trained asset like that, we have to probably come up with with more innovative payment structures. I think there is a place for a more agile and innovative pay system. And I'm not talking about the mechanics of how people actually get paid, but a compensation system. And but it, there, as you'll appreciate, you know, it's got to be carefully considered because you don't want to create um, such uh, exclusively star caliber individuals that they they cease to identify with the broader team. Um, we do have a system that is fairly effective at, at compensating people for specialized skills and for the type of employment that they're engaged in, which is another key consideration. Um, but it is, it's very clunky, it's very heavy, and, and there are a number of considerations that I think are less sophisticated than they should be. But what is interesting is that even if, again, even if you had all that, um, it, 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 there, there's an element of this which is not tied to compensation per se, but it is tied to quality of life. And a lot of people leave because they're just tired. Um, and, uh, you know, so you, I think there's a point at which you can, you can and should pay them more um, but there, there's a point at which it doesn't matter how much you pay them. Um, it, it's the being away from their families or whatever their own personal um, mm-hmm. issue is. So, um, but I, I think we there there's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done on on retention. Um, but as I was saying earlier, that the problem of this perfect storm is people are leaving. They're leaving more than they would like. And part of the problem is there's not enough bench strength in the organization right now anyway. And we're not able, we're, we're not, able, it's not that the system's not able. It's, it, there aren't a lot of people pounding down the door to get in. Mm-hmm. So you've got low recruiting, you've got bench strength at critical levels in a number of occupations, and you've got attrition rates, um, which are 
higher than people would like. I mean, on any day, I'm sure attrition is higher than anybody would like. But the reality is, there's 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 sort of a steady flow of attrition anyway. But it so that, that and that's that's creating a problem in a system that's already overstretched. Going back to the, these discussions we were having about the ratios and stuff. Absolutely. Well, a rapid fire question then: bench strength with what's happening in the world right now with Russia, with a, an ambitious China, should we have a Canadian Armed Forces with over 100,000 people in uniform? Short answer. Yeah. I, it's got to be a hell of a lot bigger than it is now. Uh, but it needs, it's not just the size. It needs to be, it needs to be restructured. Um, but yeah. I you mean, sound like a politician. You didn't answer. No, you, you, yeah. <laughs> well, I know, but you, you know me. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to. No, like, I know. Here's the thing. Could it be 99,800? Yeah, it could, if that's the right number. Mm-hmm. Um, but the right number is not 67,000. The right yeah. number is not 71,000. The right number is a heck of a lot more than that. And it may well be that that number has to be more than 100,000. But it, it shouldn't, what I'm really trying to say is it shouldn't be an arbitrary number. It should be based on some, some really good science. And that would that could drive us to, I'm, I'm being facetious, just to push back, 98,723 could be the right number. Um, but that's a hell of a lot more than what we have now. And you talked about, you gave our listeners a bit of an insight into the three plus one, some of the ratios that you need to get to get that pointy end of the stick. There's, you know, there's three times the size required to produce that, that readiness. And look, we've saw, uh, we saw in British Columbia, we saw in Newfoundland Labrador, just in the last six to eight months, the aid to the civil power, the fact that Canadian Armed Forces are used for natural disasters, they're, they're always, we feel they're always there, but we're not making sure that that we have a system to ensure they're there. And if things change, like Russia, we are we are unprepared. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to leave the Operation Honor for a second because I do think we could do a podcast. I've often said my my teenage daughter, is the Canadian Armed Forces showing a seriousness in terms of the workplace uh, to be free from harassment, intimidation, to recruit higher numbers of women? We need new Canadians to join the Canadian Armed Forces in in higher numbers. Is there almost a transformation uh, needed for recruitment to reflect the Canada of 2022? Absolutely. And and I know, well, I say I know only with a sense of confidence in the people who are involved, that this is one of the areas that they're looking at very, very carefully. And, you know, um, Lise Bourgogne, who you know, General Bourgogne, is she's she's running the HR system, and that's part of her very extensive responsibilities. And you know, these are the kinds of questions that are being asked, and they're unpacking all this and figuring out how how they move forward exactly for the reason you're saying. Um, and and it needs to reflect um, the, the best and brightest uh, of Canadian society. And and if they're not interested. In joining, then it doesn't matter how how lucrative uh, or attractive it might be. They're just not. They're going to look somewhere else. So you know, you're, and it's your daughter's gener, my daughter's gender, the other generation that are, that are going to look at this and say, okay, is this an organ? Is this a winning organization that I want to be part of? Um, yeah. And if the if the answer is no, well then you've lost, right? So and and, and I know I know we're we're. Uh, <clears throat> 
kind of going back and forth here. I just want to touch on that other comment you made about, you know, the domestic uh, um, disaster relief and all that kind of stuff, because that's really important. And and General Air, the the chief, you know, he 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 made some semi-controversial comments a few years ago before he was CDS about his concerns about the impacts of these deployments. And and people misinterpreted that some in some ways because they thought that he was criticizing the realities of using the military in those roles. And that's not it at all. It, it, it's a legitimate role. But I, I, I observed this a number of times in, in my life as a senior officer in Ottawa, trying to explain to people that you don't organize an armed forces for that purpose. You don't train and equip an armed forces for that purpose. You can use it for that purpose um, when it's not doing other things. And, and when that's a decision, legitimately, that that's a priority for, for the nation. But this goes to a bigger point, which is every time you do one of those things, you're taking those people away from what is their higher readiness requirement. And it's a relatively, it's a challenging task, but it, on, the, on the scale of complexity, um, it's relatively low. And, and just to remind people that that's not why you have an armed forces, but you can use an armed forces, an armed force for that purpose. Anyway. Yeah. And because ours are some of the most professional in the world, uh, it's not the quantity of, of people we have, it's the quality and they're being tasked. And I think with climate change and a range of of issues, we're going to see more and more of that domestic capability. So look, um, we talked about recruitment. I want to talk about procurement. Um, my friend Mitch Hempel wrote in the line this week, talking about what will it take to fix military procurement. He reminded us of, of we've had a generation talking about acquiring a generation, the next generation of fighters. We just issued a bid, a tender to replace the World War II era pistol. Uh, he talked about the monstrous prosecution of one of the country's most accomplished military leaders when it came to naval procurement. I wonder who he was referring to there. Uh, it, it's a great article on the line. How do we fix procurement? And I say this as a seeking guy, and, and Mark, you, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was at military college when Jean Chrétien canceled the seeking replacement, the EH-101. Uh, I then stayed flying Sea Kings. We saw the procurement cycle turn into a disaster because the Liberal government didn't want to buy the cormorant, and it was really the only one that met the operational needs. I serve my, my time, uh, an operational tour on Sea Kings. I go to law school. I become a lawyer for almost a decade. My first time on power and politics, what am I talking about? the Seeking helicopter replacement deal. When we botch these projects, uh, it, it's mainly the, the, the liberals' uh, editorial note, but when we botch these products projects, and, and both parties share some blame here, we delay things, we raise costs, we potentially put folks at risk. Countries like Australia seem to do it and, and get the politics out of it. In, in a couple of minutes, how can we start fixing procurement? I've long said that I think it needs to be a specialized agency taken out of public works, taken out of D&D. Any thoughts on how we can avoid this decade of darkness approach, or as I've said with the Trudeau government, what I call the decade of indifference, hollowing out the, the Canadian Armed Forces? What are your thoughts on procurement? 
Yeah. So, wow. Okay. So before we get into the, how do we fix it? Because I think it's important to say, what are the, so we know, we know, or we can describe, and I did see that article by your colleague and, you know, the, the characterization of, of the problems is widespread. There's no, there's no shortage of information, but that, let's just look at what I think are three or four ingredients to um, our systemic failures in this regard, okay? And they're in no particular order. First, um, the actual capacity to move program. Uh, there aren't enough people who are available, skilled, trained, um, and, and, and capable of actually uh, moving um, the program, spending the money per se, okay? So that's the first thing. We have a capacity problem. The second thing is we have a massive uh, process problem with with just a, a, an absolutely obscure and distributed network of authorities um, that that get involved, um, and and that contributes to delays. Um, it, it contributes to opportunities for obfuscation for those who are inclined to do so. So you've got a distribution of authority problem. The next problem, layer of the problem, if you will, is um, you've got a problem around um, requirements related to, and, and, and I've tried to explain this to others before, you, don't, you can't blame the users who, uh, to use your seeking analogy, who only get a chance to buy something every 50 years for trying to buy the best thing they possibly can because they have no confidence in the system that isn't going to make them hang on to it for another 50 years. Um, I'm oversimplifying it, but I think you get the point. Um, it's always easy to point it at the military and say, oh, they're gold plating everything, blah, blah, blah. But there is a problem with requirements and it relates to the fact that it's not agile. Um, and it, it, it gets, it, it, when, when something big comes along, and we're seeing this with the surface combatant, and there's lots of examples of it, okay? So, so that's, a pro, that's, a, that's a layer of the problem. So, and then I, it's not that there are not any other layers, but I guess the last layer would be um, how we actually deliver the capability. And, you know, we get, it's kind of a cookie cutter approach to um, how, how things are purchased the actual pro, the actual purchasing process and we we could and should be more innovative in terms of how we do things um we buy these assets and hang on to them for way too long um you know we should be amortizing them better we should be writing them off if we, we talk about accrual accounting but we only look at one half of the equation we don't actually depreciate the asset as people would in the private sector you know the, the, so so there's lots of those types of things to cut so that is hopefully an overview of what the problems are so then in order to fix it, you've got to address these problems. But you can't just address one because, you know, we understand this is a wicked problem by definition. So you, you try to tackle one thing and, it's, and it pushes over into another dimension of that. So whatever solution we come up with has to address all those problems. And I think there's, there's no shortage of good ideas in this department or in this, in this, in this space. Um, but, you know, you've been in cabinet, you've, you've dealt with these issues. You've seen, I th I'm sure you've seen, and I know we you can't talk about it, but you, you've seen some of the dimensions of what I'm talking about from, from different perspectives. Um, so we need to simplify 
the process. We need to reduce the number of organizations and authorities that are engaged in it. We need to come up with more innovative procurement mechanisms at the at the actual buying part of it. Um, we we need to um, uh, and we need to tackle the process. I mean that you know it sounds really simple. I don't I don't have in my mind what would, this would look like, but I can tell you right now it. Whatever it looks like, it doesn't look like what we have now. So it goes back to your, is it the right answer, 100,000? I don't know. But it's closer to 100,000 than it is to where we are. It, it's, and, and, and governments just keep saying that this is a problem and we don't do it. Where are the allies? And Australia is a great example. Look, 20 years ago, the Australians were as messed up as we were, are now. Uh, and they would admit it. What what happened? What what have they done differently? Well, one of the things they've done differently is they've moved beyond um, the really parochial politics of procurement. Yes, there's always disagreements, and there will be, and and they're not nothing's perfect. But they look they look at military procurement as a national issue, uh, a strategic issue. They don't look at it as a politicized issue in the same way that we tend to. It's not perfect. You know, it's a grass is greener on the other side of the fence kind of scenario. But that's one of the key things they've done. They've also, you know, they've also recognized the 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 imperative of the strategic situation they find themselves in, and they're prepared to invest in it. And that's a whole other discussion for mm-hmm. another podcast. But yeah, you know, yeah. those are a couple of things. No, this helpful in Australia. Uh, I've I've said we need to look to the current Liberal government keeps reprofiling all the capital spending, meaning they're just kicking the can down the road, saying they're buying things and not. Um, I really do think. Um, we need to reinvent this space because I have been at the cabinet table. And if if you think organizations are going to change organically themselves, um, um, it's not going to happen. Um, there needs to be a, a rethink here. Final question on, on this, the contracting out. We've seen that in terms of some training. We've seen that in, in maintenance. We see that in some uh, fisheries, sovereignty, pollution patrols. Uh, there was even proposals about contracting out some search and rescue capacity um, with critical gaps existing now. Um, is this an option for us to consider to build up capacity quickly to be more cost effective? Or will this hollow out the, the capacity of the Canadian Armed Forces? Do you have any uh, any thoughts on that and, and in using some of these organizations, which in many cases employ Canadian Armed Forces veterans and, and, and use external assets and allow us to spool up a capacity faster. Any thoughts on, on this? Because it is somewhat controversial. Yeah, so I, I do have some thoughts. I am generally supportive of this as a concept um, and was uh, when I was serving. I I would look at things from, it's an oversimplification, but for the purposes of our discussion, what are, what are some of the core capabilities that the military absolutely has to do or should do? And what are other elements of this broad system that we were describing earlier in our conversation? The stuff that's going on behind the storefront in, in some respects, it doesn't have to only be stuff in the back, but, um, where they're not necessarily core capabilities and they can be more efficiently delivered um, by others. And I, I think that this goes back to one of my five 
I think it was five points I said about procurement. This is this is a great example of how we can be more innovative in terms of how we actually deliver the capability. Um, we don't have to buy and own everything. Um, and, and in many respects, it doesn't make sense for us to buy and own it because then we're tied to the continued um, uh, maintenance and, and, and care and custody of whatever that capability is. And I think there's some really good examples out there. And you mentioned some, you know, training, um, the logistics support is another area. Um, you know, other militaries, the, the British military have, have got some very effective examples of uh, infrastructure and how they privatize some of that. And sure, there's always risks with these things. And, you know, that people have, have somewhat allergic reactions, both inside the military and outside, you know, um, the, 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 but they're... It, there are opportunities to be more innovative, and it and it and it. You look at the end of the day, you're going to try these things. You're going to you're going to experiment. You're going to learn. You probably make some mistakes, um, but as long as it's actually helping. Um, and to your point about employing, um, employing uh, retired uh, veterans. I mean, that's that's a great thing. And there's there's a lot of companies in Canada who who make this a priority. Um, and some of them have something to do with military capability, and a lot of them have absolutely nothing to do with military capability. But you know, this is an area where it, 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 you could shape that. There's 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 a there's opportunity for some really smart policy in this regard, um, and some really smart business. And if you can match the policy with business, I, I think that, that would be a really good a really good way to go forward. But you're never going to have you're never going to have a frontline uh, aircraft on forward deployed um, being provided by a private sector supplier, right? Like that. So, yeah. that, you know, yeah, it, we're not hiring, we're not hiring mercenaries, but I, I think you're, right. You're, you're, you're right. Defining the core capabilities of the Canadian armed forces and then saying, how can we fill gaps? How can we meet this, this readiness def, uh, deficit in a way that is fast, quick and cost effective? Because those ratios you talked about, all the work and the hundreds and thousands of people in uniform that do the work to get the the operators in the storefront, as you use the example, um, there's a lot there. So listen, I, I wanted us to touch on Arctic sovereignty and our NATO target issues that are uh, important to me and I know to you. I think this means we may have to have you on again because we're almost coming up uh, on an hour, which would be a long podcast. But this is such an important topic. The the chief of defense staff saying military readiness keeps him up at night, keeps me up at night, keeps probably you up at night. Um, we've had a really good discussion. So Vice Admiral Mark Norman, I want to thank you for your incredible comments and, and insights today. I want to thank you and your family for a lifetime of service to our country and just let you know how much I admired your, your dignity and tenacity through adversity, through the little tail end of your career, just showed the character you have. So thank you very much for, for being our guest today. And I thought we'd sign off with, this will broadcast on a Monday, a, a test for the, the Admiral. What's the Naval toast for Mondays? Our ships. Our ships at sea. So uh, yeah. a salute to the men and women who serve 
at sea and of course uh, in the air and on the ground. Um, they're some of our best citizens. So thank you for talking about how we equip them today and uh, continued success in your post-military career. Thank you. And Aaron, it's been a pleasure and I'm um, available at any time you want to chat. So to your listeners, thank you. And I know many of your listeners um, were there for me and my family uh, a few years ago, and I thank them for uh, their interest in the military. That's why they're listening to this podcast. It's important to Canada, and I thank them for, for their support to those who serve and uh, those of us who are no longer serving but still really care about what's going on. So we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you, Mark. We still really care. As, as you know, you never really leave the Canadian Armed Forces. You, you go, you hang up your uniform, and you become a booster and a supporter. So you've already committed to potentially coming back. You're ready, I ready, as we say in the Navy. And I want to thank everyone for listening to an extended version of the Blue Skies political podcast today. Going back to the clip from President Zelensky at the top, we need to make sure that we are ready, I ready as a nation, and to play our role with our NATO allies, and to be ready to help our friends and our compatriots in Ukraine. It has been horrific to watch the, the violence and the aggression by the Putin regime. It's been inspiring to watch the resilience of the Ukrainian people standing up to such tyranny, picking up rifles, whether they're 18 or 88, it's been incredible. And the personal leadership of the Ukrainian president has been demonstrated countless times. And him speaking to Westminster, Canada's parliament, and to the US Congress is an example of, of leadership that I think we can all draw some inspiration from. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. We'll be back within a week or two for more issues exploring the issues that affect Canada and the world in an engaging and thoughtful way, bringing together the best of political discourse and special guests like we had today with Vice Admiral Mark Norman. So I'm Aaron O'Toole signing off. We will blue sky another topic in the coming weeks. 